0: Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Today our church celebrates the great ascension of Jesus into heaven. Jesus now completes his mission and he turns the ministry over to the apostles to begin the church and now it returns to the Father in heaven to sit at his right hand. Now, if you look at the first reading, it's from Acts of the Apostles, the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it's important, first and foremost, to know a little bit about the author of Acts of the Apostles. It's Luke, the person that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a physician before he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, he's a well-educated and very smart man. He's also literate. In fact, he's a great narrator. As we read the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, he's a great writer. It was St. Paul who actually recruited or brought Luke into the faith. St. Paul baptized Luke, and from that moment forward, Luke never left Paul's side. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. He traveled on many of Paul's missionary journeys. In fact, Paul speaks about Luke, he mentions him in Corinthians, Galatians is even in First and Second Timothy. In fact, it was Luke who was with Paul at his martyrdom. So, everything that Paul or Luke knows about Christianity was given to him by Paul. Paul was his mentor. Now, Scripture scholars will tell you, in order for you to truly understand Luke's message, as well as what Christianity is all about, you have to read the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles together as one novel. In fact, Luke specifically wrote both to be one novel together. The first part of the novel is the Gospel of Luke, which deals exclusively with Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teachings, his passion, death, and resurrection. The second part of the novel is Acts of the Apostles, which deals exclusively about our early church. How the apostles began the church and the growing pains that they encountered, the challenges as the church grew in the first few decades. And so, Luke now is a literary genius. And we're going to see that at the very beginning of the first reading from Acts the Apostles. Notice how it begins. In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. The first book, he's referencing his gospel, the gospel of Luke which is all about the life and the events surrounded of Jesus Christ. We could say in our day and age, for lack of a better term, Acts of the Apostles is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke specifically wrote it that way. Now, we could conclude from the very beginning of Acts that Acts was written for a specific person, this person named Theophilus. And that could be true. And it wasn't uncommon for affluent and wealthy benefactors to financially sponsor the apostles or other disciples. They did so that the apostles wouldn't be preoccupied with expenses and income and generating donations. Instead, they could devote all of their time and all of their attention to evangelization. Well, as we begin the Acts of the Apostles, we see Luke is a very wise and articulate narrator he uses Theophilus to address one person or maybe to address us all. Remember, the Bible was originally written in Greek. Theophilus is a Greek word. When translated, it means beloved of God. So from the very beginning, Luke is trying to universalize this identity. He allows every reader who reads Acts of the Apostles to the, be the person that Luke specifically wrote Acts for. Now, Reread it again with the translation. In the first book, Beloved of God, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. Well, I would argue Acts of the Apostles is not necessarily addressed to one specific person, Theophilus. Instead, it's addressed to us all. We are all the beloved or lovers of God. They're from the very beginning. Luke sets our attention. He grabs our attention and tells us, Acts the Apostles is specifically written for us because we are the beloved of God. Now he continues, he being Jesus, presented himself alive to them by many proofs. Well, now Luke is trying to address the miracle of the resurrection. And he wants to substantiate, to prove in many different ways, the resurrection truly happened. It's not a hoax. It's not just a story. First and foremost, the tomb was empty. Many people witnessed that. The body was gone. Next, Jesus appeared to the apostles and to many others. Thomas himself examined Jesus' wounds. St. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus Christ appeared to 500 people simultaneously after his resurrection. And yet the greatest proof is that Jesus Christ appeared to the fiercest adversary of our church, the first fiercest enemy of our church, Saul of Tarsus, and on that road to Damascus changed him, became now Paul, the most zealous evangelizer and the greatest defender of our church. So Luke, from the very beginning, he's saying you can't refute, you can't deny all this evidence. The resurrection truly did take place. Notice also, it says, he appeared to them during 40 days. Now, why does he add that detail, 40 days? It's like, who cares how long he appeared to the apostles? We have to realize it's a basic biblical truth. Numbers in sacred scripture have sacred symbolism attached to them. In this case, it's a period of preparation for the apostles before they begin the church and the work of their ministry. You see this up and down sacred scripture. People needing a period of Preparation before they embark upon God's mission. Moses, he spends 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Sinai, talking with God. Then afterwards, he receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain and presents them to the Israelites. Elijah, he spends 40 days and 40 nights walking in the desert. He finally gets to Mount Sinai, where he encounters God, and then God anoints him to be the next great prophet. Jesus himself, before he began his ministry, he fled into the desert. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he battled the devil and the temptations. Well, our church continues that same tradition. Anyone who comes to the church to receive a sacrament, whatever it is, well, the church requires a period of preparation for that person to understand and appreciate the gift they are about to receive. Whether it's a second grader for their first communion a teenager for confirmation, or an engaged couple who want to get married. The church asks them to come to a period of preparation in which they need time to fathom the magnitude of the sacrament they are to receive, that the sacraments awaken in us a response to the presence of Christ in our life. And that's what's going on here. Now next, the apostles asked Jesus a question. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, that's an odd question. They know Jesus is going to leave them forever, and they won't see him again until they die in judgment. Now, if it was you or I, we would probably ask them the question, what was the resurrection like? What did it feel like? What did you see? You know, what's your resurrected body like that you can pass through doors that are locked? What's heaven like? Where is it? And what can we expect when we get there? Those would be questions we would all be asking Jesus before he leaves us. Now, realize the Israelites for centuries knew that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a new administration, a new government. So the apostles believed Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, they want to know when Jesus' new government is going to be created. What are they really looking for or searching for? Where are they going to be in the pecking order of this new government? You know, what prominent position are they going to hold? Notice how Jesus answers the question, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. Well, the apostles truly will see the Holy Spirit and it's only through the Holy Spirit that they can accomplish the works of the church. Finally, at the end, Jesus ascends back into heaven. Now, if there's one thing that you must take from this feast, one thing that you must understand, is how the ascension links Christmas and Easter together. How the ascension links the birth of Jesus to Jesus' death and resurrection. Here's how. When Jesus was born, he did not leave his divinity back in heaven. Instead, he was born into this world like you and I, with his full human nature, but he also was born maintaining his divine nature, fully intact. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he didn't lose or leave behind his human nature. He didn't say to himself, you know, I'm sick of this grubby human nature. I'm just going to leave it here in the tomb and rise fully divine. No, When he rose from the dead, he rose with his human nature and his divine nature fully intact. And see, then he ascends into heaven, but he ascends with his divinity and as well as his humanity fully intact. And so now, because of that, heaven, you could say, has adopted or accommodated itself to receive our human nature that it wasn't able before, before the ascension of Christ. And so, the celebration of the Ascension, yes, it's a celebration of Christ, but it's also a celebration for us. Through the Ascension, Jesus has now carved out, he has blazed a pathway that never existed before. Our human nature now can reside within heaven because Christ has done so himself. And it's a pathway that our ancestors have taken before us, our grandparents, parents, may even our children, Walked that path before us, and it's a path that we all hope we will walk one day ourselves. And see, this is why we pray every day, we go to mass every week, we do the corporal and spiritual works of mercy because all those things remind us of that great promise and hope that we too will walk the path that Jesus has walked in the ascension to heaven. Well, we have to realize through this great feast, all of our hopes. And all of our dreams have now become a reality because Jesus' ascension into heaven. Now we too, hopefully one day, will follow him so that we are with Christ forever, along with all of our ancestors. And that is worth rejoicing about. And may the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.